As they're finding their seat, why don't you uh, open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are looking in Acts chapter 23 right now. Uh, we made it through verse 11 last week, and so we'll continue on today. We're going to look at Acts 23 verses 12 through 35 this morning. Acts 23 verses 12 through 35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency the Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by by night to Antipatrice. And on the, day, and the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea, he delivered the letter to the governor and presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Thus ends our reading of God's holy word. May all who hear it know that King Jesus is sovereign over all things. It was on Christmas Eve, 1875, 
And Ira Sankey was traveling on a Delaware River steamboat when he was recognized by some of the passengers. His picture had been in the newspaper because he was the song leader for the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. They asked him to sing one of his own hymns, but Sankey demurred, saying that he preferred to sing William B. Bradbury's hymn, Savior Like a Shepherd, Lead Us. As he sang, one of the stanzas began, We are thine, do thou befriend us, be the guardian of our way. When he finished, a man stepped from the shadows and asked, Did you ever serve in the Union Army? Yes, Mr. Sankey answered, in the spring of 1860. Can you remember if you were doing picket duty on a bright moonlit night in 1862? Yes, Mr. Sankey answered, very much surprised. So did I, but I was serving in the Confederate Army. When I saw you standing at your post, I thought to myself, that fellow will never get out alive. I raised my musket and took aim. I was standing in the shadow completely concealed while the full light of the moon was falling upon you. At that instant, just as a moment ago, you raised your eyes to heaven and began to sing. Let him sing his song to the end, I said to myself. I can shoot him afterwards. He's my victim at all events, and my bullet cannot miss him. But the song you sang then was the song you sang just now. I heard the words perfectly. We are thine. Do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our way. Those words stirred up many memories. I began to think of my childhood and my God-fearing mother. She had many times sung that song to me. When you had finished your song, it was impossible for me to take aim again. I thought, the Lord who is able to save that man from certain death must surely be great and mighty. And my arm of its own accord dropped limp at my side. Oftentimes, when we think of the power of of Jesus Christ, we, we tend to think of the miracles he could perform. Whether it was walking on water, the multiplying of the bread, or the numerous healings that he had accomplished as he was dwelling among us on this earth. And even after he left us, after he ascended into heaven, we, we, we still often look for the miraculous, to the powerful manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Like when the disciples began speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost. Like when a man who, who had been lame from birth was now able to walk after the Apostle Peter had commanded him to stand. Or, or like when the chains fell off of, of Peter's wrist and the door to the jail cell opened when the angel of the Lord came and rescued him. And we, we read about such things and, and we know that they are all demonstrations of how Jesus is now ruling from above. And yet sometimes the work that Christ is doing is not so easily recognized. And that's because more often than not, Jesus is working through his providence. What is providence? I'm glad you asked. Providence is when God supernaturally uses the natural to accomplish his will. 
is when no miracle can be found and yet Christ's power is made evident. It's when a Union soldier should have been shot and killed and yet God spared his life by having him sing the same exact song that the mother of a Confederate soldier used to sing. That, my friends, is providence. I mean, consider the word itself. Providence, it comes from the word provide, right? It is this notion that God will provide all that is needed. It is in the book of Genesis when Abraham takes his son Isaac up to that mountain in order to sacrifice to the Lord, and yet he carries no lamb. What did Abraham say when Isaac asked his father, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? How did Abraham answer his son? God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And that's exactly what God did. In his providence, he had caused a ram to get caught in the thicket with his horns. There is no miracle. There is no supernatural event. It is simply God orchestrating all things to achieve his end. Similarly, in in our scripture for today, we see God's providence at work. Jesus causes a, a chain of events to occur to achieve his purposes. If you remember, the Apostle Paul, he had been arrested He he was arrested by the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, after a a riot had broken out near the temple in Jerusalem. Paul was, was about to be killed. And yet Claudius, along with his Roman soldiers, they stepped in and rescued this man. That was when Claudius took Paul into custody, locking him up into the Tower of Antonia. But Claudius, he he was bound and determined to get to the bottom of all this. He he wanted to know why these Jews were so upset at this man named Paul. Why why they were ready to pummel him to death right then and there. And so he allowed Paul to, to, to go before the masses, to speak to them in order to give his defense. And yet when Paul approached the crowd, do you remember what happened? He he addressed them in the Hebrew language, not allowing Claudius to, to understand or to get any information. And what was worse, Paul's speech didn't seem to ease any tensions, did it? For before Paul could even finish, these Jews were once again shouting for his head. That's when Claudius said, enough is enough. And he decided to have Paul flogged in order to get the information that he wanted. He was going to make Paul speak. And yet before the whip could be cracked, Paul informed these Roman soldiers that, that he was a Roman citizen. And that it was illegal for them to do what they were about to do. And so, so Claudius, what did he do? He had to take another approach. If he was going to find out anything that he wanted to know. That's when he invited the, the Jewish high council, also known as the Sanhedrin, for this preliminary hearing. He, he thought to himself, perhaps under a more structured setting, that he would be able to discover what Paul was actually being accused of. Yeah, even that plan backfired. Remember, the high council 
It became divided and, and, and began violently arguing against one another. And it was at that moment that Claudius realized that Paul truly was innocent and that there was no charge that could be brought against him. And yet, Claudius couldn't let him go, for Paul's life was now in danger. And being that he was a Roman citizen, Claudius was bound by oath to protect him. And all this leads us to today, where, where we see the Jews who, who wanted Paul dead coming up with another scheme to take Paul's life. Look, look again at verses 12 through 15. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. You see, thus far, these Jews who wanted Paul's life had been unsuccessful in their attempts. And yet, as we see here, they were far from giving up. While Paul had garnered the, the, the favor of the Pharisees, he had only enraged further those who were of the Sadducees. And now there were these 40-plus men who had bound themselves by an oath to see Paul dead. So what does it mean to take an oath in this manner? Basically, to, to bind oneself to an oath in, in the way that these men did meant that they were putting themselves under the curse of God if they failed to carry out what they had promised to do. And this, this oath that they had made, it was foolish, wasn't that? For, for there were a number of variables that were out of their hands, out of their control. And yet, for some reason, they had now bound themselves to God through their words. But even worse, they, they had then added a stipulation to their oath. For these men refused to eat or to even drink until Paul was dead. And I'm sure this only furthered their motivation to act as quickly as possible. And then think about this. This oath had been made by more than 40 men. So, so it wasn't just the fanaticism of a single man or even a lonely few. Rather, these men, they had conspired together. And with that great of a number, it, it meant that they were actually willing and most likely could go up against Roman soldiers if they had to. They were willing to risk their own lives in order to get the job done. Ask yourself, how much hatred does a person have to, have to store within their heart to conspire to make an oath such as this one? And yet these men, they thought that they were doing the will of God. Bottom line, these men were extremists. 
They, they were like your, your modern-day suicide bombers. One way or another, they were, they were going to make sure that Paul was dead, even if it cost them their own lives. And yet to carry out their plan, they were going to need some help. For 40-plus men were not enough to, to storm a Roman fortress. But if Paul were to be moved, well, then there would be a window of opportunity. And so they needed to find a reason for Paul to be out in the open. And that's where the chief priests and these elders came into play. They would be the ones to ask the Roman tribune for another hearing. And while Paul was being delivered to them, that would be when they would strike. I mean, all in all, it's not a bad plan. Well, let's see if their strategy worked. Look at, look at verses 16 through 22. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready and waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Luke now introduces to us a, a new player into our story, this son of Paul's sister. Who was who he? We don't know, right? He, he was Paul's nephew. And yet somehow this, this young man had caught wind of this conspiracy. How did he hear? Again, Luke doesn't tell us, right? Just that somehow he did. Bottom line, somebody did not keep quiet about this. And honestly, this shouldn't surprise us. For, for when you have more than 40 men who are under an oath together, as well as the chief priests and, and some of the elders, all in on this conspiracy, well, bottom line, you, you have too many players involved. Too many mouths and ears to keep this thing on the hush-hush. And yet when it came to keeping secrets, we find no better example than both the Apostle Paul and the Roman Tribune Claudius Lysias. Understanding the urgency of the situation, we see Paul's nephew immediately heading to the Tower of Antonia. He wanted to let his uncle know the danger that he was in. But unlike these conspirators, the Apostle Paul knew the importance of keeping things under wraps. He knew that information such as this should only be known by a few. And that was why he ordered his nephew to go straight to the tribune and that he should only speak to him. Not even the centurion who had been guarding Paul, the, who, who Paul had asked to guide his nephew to the tribune, not even he needed to know. Paul simply wanted to get this information to Claudius Lysias. 
And honestly, Claudius was the only one who could do anything about this. Unfortunately for Paul, Claudius was an experienced commander. Someone who also understood the value in secrecy. That was why when he heard that this young man had been sent from Paul, that he had something to say, he, he drew him to the side. He spoke with him privately. In some isolated portion of that room, this Roman tribune heard all about the plot that had been concocted by these 40-plus men. And understanding the sensitive nature of this young man's word, Claudius would, would keep this information as tight-lipped as possible. He commanded Paul's nephew not to tell anyone. Don't tell a soul. But now that Claudius had this information, what would he do with it? How would he be able to help Paul out? Look at verses 23 and 24. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred bowmen. That's four hundred and seventy Roman soldiers. Did you grasp that? Two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred bowmen. And for what? For the protection of one man. When my family and I moved to Thailand, we spent our first three years living in the northern province of Chiang Mai. And during the winter months, Chiang Mai would get relatively cool, at least by Thai standards. Right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like our summer here, but, but it's cool to the Thai people. And, and because of this cool weather, the, the king of Thailand, he had built a winter palace upon Doi Sutap, a, a large mountain that was next to the city of Chiang Mai. And every year around the month of January, the king would travel to that palace in order to escape the Bangkok heat. And yet to get to that palace, the king would have to, one, fly to, fly to the Chiang Mai airport and then take a vehicle the rest of the way to that mountain. He, he would have to travel down the Canal Highway, take a left on Sutep Road, which led straight up to his palace. But guess what that meant? That meant that the rest of Chiang Mai would have to wait before they could use those roads. The Thai police would block off every entrance, every exit, on and off of those roads, while a caravan of black SUVs with tinted windows that I'm sure were bulletproof would speed their way to that winter palace. Now, why would they do this? Why did they take so much precaution for one man? Well, because he was a king, right? 
He, he, he was the most important man in that nation. And his protection was priority number one. Now, Paul wasn't a king. He, he held no worldly position of power. And yet he was afforded a king's protection. Why? Because he was a Roman citizen? I mean, perhaps, or perhaps there's more at play than we can initially see. You see, Jerusalem, it had been a hotbed for false messiahs and zealots, men who, who believed that it was their destiny to overthrow the Romans. Remember when Paul was first brought in, who, who did Claudius believe Paul to be? An Egyptian, a, a zealot who, who tried to lead a revolt only a few years prior. Now, why would Claudius think that? Because these were the type, types of messes that he had to deal with on a regular basis. False messiahs who thought that they were God's chosen instrument to kick out the Romans. And now imagine what would happen if 40 Jewish men, in their efforts to assassinate the Apostle Paul, had attacked, say, 10 or 15 Roman soldiers and killed some of them in the process. How would that look? I'll tell you how that would look. Many in Rome would view it as a, a, a direct attack upon them. They, they wouldn't care that the main target was this man named Paul. No, they would only care that their soldiers had been murdered. They would not see this as an assassination attempt upon a man. Rather, they would see this as a declaration of war. And bottom line, Claudius had no other choice than to dispatch those 470 troops. He needed to dissuade these 40-plus men who had taken an oath from even thinking that they had a chance. He wasn't going to give them any semblance of a notion that they would find success. And so he outnumbered them almost 12 to 1. But that wasn't the only thing he did. For in a, in a demonstration of even more precaution, he had then sent them out at the third hour of the night. After it was dark. After the people would be sleeping and nobody would be paying attention. And, and so Paul not only had an army surrounding him, but he also... When he had left for Caesarea, he, he also had the cover of night so that he could leave in secret. That's the type of protection that was afforded the Apostle Paul. And yet there's more. For Paul also had the backing of Claudius Lysias, this Roman tribune who was overseeing Jerusalem. And so Paul, when he arrived at the governor's palace in Caesarea, he would arrive with the favor of the Roman military. Look at verses 25 through 30. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and 
was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against a man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Now, Governor Felix was this Roman ruler who oversaw the provinces of both Judea and Syria. And he was Claudius's superior. And so when Claudius wrote this letter, he, he, he wrote it in such a way as to shine a more favorable light upon himself, right? I mean, Claudius was portraying himself as this hero of Rome, protecting one of Rome's citizens. He, he made it seem that he had done this gallant deed by rescuing Paul, when in reality he was simply trying to prevent a riot and really could have cared less about Paul until he discovered that he was a Roman citizen. And so there was no mention of Paul being chained. There was no mention of Paul almost being flogged for information. I mean, why waste parchment on frivolous details, right? And yet what this letter did for Paul was it placed him in a favorable position with the governor. For he would now arrive with the presumption of innocence and not be seen as some flight risk. There, there was nothing to encourage Governor Felix to, to lock this man up in some dank cell like those who have committed true crimes against Rome. Instead, Paul would be treated with dignity and care that was due a, a Roman citizen. You see, by sending Paul to Felix, what, what, what Claudius had done as he had put this hedge of protection around Paul. Under the care of Felix, Paul would find sanctuary. But more importantly, by going to Caesarea, by going to Felix, Paul found himself one step closer to his intended destination to the city of Rome. Well, let's see if Claudius's plan worked. Would Paul make it safely to Caesarea? Or would this faction of 40-plus men end up fulfilling their oath? Look at, look at verses 31 and 32. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. Now, the journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea was approximately 70 miles. And if you're on foot, that, that would take an average traveler close to four days to make that journey. And yet these were not your average travelers, were they? These were Roman soldiers. They were trained men who, who were used to traveling long distances in short periods of time. And so we see that on that first night, they made it all the way to Antipatris, which was a 37-mile journey. Yeah. And this meant that they were booking it. 
I mean, to make that distance in a day would, I mean, they would have had to have traveled all through the night and most of the next day with hardly taking any breaks. Now, now for Paul, who was on horseback, and for the 70 cavalrymen, well, that would have been so difficult. But for the other 400 soldiers, I, I can just imagine the exhaustion that they had when they arrived at Antipatrice. But again, they had good reason for their haste because they wanted to create as much distance as they could between Paul and those men who were out for his head. And yet because they had created that, that distance, they could now ease up a bit. The 70 horsemen, the cavalrymen, they would go on with Paul for that final leg of the journey while the remaining 400 troops would make their way back to Jerusalem. And so the threat on Paul's life was now far, far behind him. And even if his enemies somehow managed to catch up, they'd still have to face 70 armed horsemen. This leads us to our final verses. Look at, look at verses 33 through 35. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And so the last hurdle that Paul needed to get through was Felix's approval. Would this governor accept Paul's case, or would he reject Paul altogether and kick him to the curb? This is why Claudius' letter was so vital. For, for if Felix was not willing to take Paul's case, well then, guess what? Paul would have to be sent back to Jerusalem. Sent back to where those 40 plus men were lying in wait to take his life. And, and this is why we see Felix asking Paul where he was from. He, he wanted to see if Paul was either from Judea or from Syria, the provinces over which he ruled. For if he was going to try a case, he wanted to make sure that it was worth his while. I mean, no sense in trying a case from someone who's, say, from Galatia. I mean, he didn't need to win the favor of the Galatians at all. And so if Paul wasn't from a province that was under his jurisdiction, well, then Felix really had no reason to hear Paul's case. Just go back to Jerusalem. Go back to Claudius. Let him deal with the mess you're in. And yet Paul was from the city of Tarsus in the province of Cilicia. And he, and he didn't fit the bill that Felix was looking for. And yet, for some reason, Felix still accepted his case. The question is, why? Well, Luke doesn't tell us explicitly, but... But it was commonly known to the people at that time that, that this Felix, he actually rose to power out of obscurity. And in fact, he, he was once a slave. And yet he had been freed by Caesar himself and eventually promoted to the position of governor. I mean, that's, that's a powerful, powerful rise. But guess where Felix, this slave who had become a governor, was originally from? 
He was from the province of Cilicia. Paul was one of his people. And this is what had probably led for him to take his case. So what did it mean that Paul would be heard by Felix? Well, it meant that Paul was now under the governor's protection. But not only that, but, it, but, but he would remain in Herod's praetorium, which was actually the governor's palace. I mean, that's not bad digs for a prisoner, am I right? Uh, are you beginning to understand? Are you, getting, are you beginning to see the hand of Jesus behind all of this? This is God's providence at play. Jesus was going to protect his servant. He would not allow his chosen apostle to fall in the hands of, of his enemies. And why? Because Jesus had placed Paul exactly where he wanted him. Look back at Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Here we see after, after Paul had taken his journey to Damascus, back when he was called Saul, here Jesus was speaking to Ananias about the Apostle Paul. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was Christ's chosen instrument to be a witness for him before who? Before Gentiles? before the children of Israel, and before kings. Now we have already seen Paul bring the gospel to both Jews and to Gentiles. And yet now Jesus wanted Paul to preach his name before the rulers of this earth. And that is exactly what he would be doing. But in order to get him there, in order to bring him to Rome, Jesus needed to exert his authority through the use of these providential means. I mean, think about all that had to have, have to happen in order to get Paul to where he was. I mean, Jesus had to make sure that there was this slip of the tongue and that, that Paul's nephew was in the right place at the right time to hear it. Then Jesus had to, had to give both Paul and Claudius, Claudius the, the wherewithal to keep under wraps the secret that they had learned. Not to mention that Jesus had to turn the heart of Claudius towards Paul, in favor of Paul. And then Jesus had to place a governor over Judea who was once a slave from Cilicia in order to earn Paul favor once he had arrived in Caesarea. And who knows, without the conspiracy in the first place, Paul may have never made it to Felix, and he may have never made it to Rome. For it probably would have been Claudius who would have tried his case, found him innocent, allowing Paul to leave a free man, and yet never having the opportunity to preach Christ to the kings of this world. And yet it was King Jesus who directed all of these events. Because he is the God of providence. He is the God who provides. 
Dear friends, I hope you understand that Jesus Christ is capable of doing these same things today. That he can manipulate and maneuver in the natural and that he can do so with ease. Let me ask you, do you believe that God right now is orchestrating all things? That he is guiding the thoughts of paupers and moving the hearts of kings, all for the furtherance of his kingdom? Do you believe that he is capable of using worldly resources such as Roman soldiers and powerful leaders to accomplish his purposes? I guarantee you that's what he does. Listen, I, I know that when you look at the world today, when you turn on the news, you see all sorts of wickedness and folly. But what you need to understand is that Jesus is the one who is pulling all the strings, even when you can't see the purposes behind it. And that's because he is positioning presidents and prime ministers for his own kingdom designs. He, he is setting the stage for the gospel to be proclaimed to all peoples and all nations. And that's because there is nobody, nobody who wants to see his kingdom grow more than him. I, I think that much of the problem in the church today is that, is that we as a people think too little when it comes to our king. There are too many of us who, who believe that in order for his plans to be accomplished, that there needs to be some type of miraculous occurrence that will have the power to change hearts and turn sinners into repentant believers. That there needs to be signs and wonders. And don't get me wrong, Christ can do this and he does do this. But that's not how he usually works. Jesus is so much more powerful than that. And that power is seen through his providence. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Listen, there, there are many today who believe that Jesus is not on his throne. That they think that if he was, then they would see these awesome and amazing things. But that's because they don't understand the true power of our God. He is a mighty, mighty king who orders 470 soldiers to guard a single man. He, he places a slave from Cilicia into a position of power in order to gain a hearing for his apostle. He even allows the hearts of the wicked to come up with their evil schemes in order to move his servant closer to Rome. And then he, then he thwarts these same enemies before they even wake up in the morning. And then get this. He even prepared a governor's palace in which his servant might stay simply because he can. This, this, my friends, is who our Jesus is. He is the king. He has control over all things. And he is still active today. He is still working for the good of those who love him. 
His will cannot be undone. And it doesn't matter how many conspirators there are. It doesn't matter how many men take an oath to stop him. King Jesus will have his way. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you because you truly are sovereign over all things. There is nothing that occurs that is outside of your will. And you even use our own sin for your holy purposes. And we thank you for this. You see, it was our sin that caused the greatest of evils when you nailed, when we nailed your son to that tree. And yet when evil seemed to be winning, that was when you had your greatest victory. It was in your providence that Jesus died for us when he paid the penalty for our sins. And for that, we give you great thanks. And now that Jesus has risen from the dead, now that he has ascended and taken his seat of authority, we ask that you would help us. Help us to trust in him. Help us to trust in his power. Help us to know that even in a world that seems full of folly and error, he has control over it all. Help us to believe. We can only do this by the strength of your spirit. So fill us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.